Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Okay, Acts chapter 13. If you have your Bible, open it on up. We're going to read the first few verses, and then we'll kind of pause and talk about those verses for just a minute before we get into kind of the meat of the sermon. This section of scripture, we're going to go through Acts 13, 14, and part of 15 today. And what we're doing is we're following Paul or Saul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So they cover about 500 miles on this journey. And it's really just following, like we've said, the blueprint from Acts 1-8, the very beginning of the book, where, where Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city that it all starts in, Judea, Samaria, the region around there, and then out to Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. And this is the beginning fruit of what we're going to see is the gospel going out to the outermost parts of the earth, of which you and I are a recipient of their faithfulness today. You tracking with that? Because we're, we're not in the Middle East right now. So it's because we're, we're here because somebody was faithful to go and to keep going and to keep being God's witness all the way out generations later. And here we are. And so it starts in Acts 13. It reads just like a bunch of names, but I want to draw attention to what's happening here at the very beginning. Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the first thing that we would maybe just read over if we're not maybe familiar with the story thus far is that who you have here that's getting laid their hands on and then getting sent off are two guys named uh, Saul and Barnabas. Now, Barnabas... Uh, if you read all the way back into Acts, I think it's chapter 4, uh, Barnabas is actually called Joseph. Joseph, his nickname, he was the son of encouragement. What a nickname, by the way. Wouldn't that just be awesome if it was just like, I'm not going to call you by your name anymore. You are just now son of encouragement. Like that, you're just a good person if that's what's happening to you. Also, like side note, the Bible's always changing people's names and it makes things complex. And the reason why that is, is I have no idea why the reason that is. It, <laughs> It's complicated for me, all right? I'm a pretty simple-minded guy. Sometimes I write words in my computer and it's like, I've got all the words in the world and I have no suggestions for you. I don't, I don't know what you're trying to spell right there. True story, I had my six-year-old niece in my office this week because they didn't have school and she wrote encyclopedia on my whiteboard. And she's like, did I spell that right? And I was like, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> did it look right to you? And she's like, yeah. I was like, then yeah, I think that's right. That looks good. But what we have is we have Joseph, who had, when we read about him in Acts chapter 4, he, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit to sell a portion of his land and to bring the proceeds from that sale to the apostles' feet and said, hey, I'm so on board with building this church. Whatever it is that you guys want to do with it, it's yours now. He lays the money at their feet, trusting them to build the kingdom however it is that they see fit. And in that moment, what we read in that story is that his name has changed from, from Joseph to Barnabas. Barnabas now, if we remember the story, would have been existing in the church in the same city that we have this guy, Saul, who is ravaging the church. Now keep in mind, it doesn't take a huge stretch of the imagination that Saul is, has orders to rip Christians out of their home, to publicly beat them, torture them, murder them, whatever it is that he wants to do. And so I'm just submitting to you that this isn't explicitly stated in the text, 
but we can imply, putting our brains on for just a second, that in a church that's only a few thousand people big, maybe 10,000 people big, let's just give it that, that we would have known that, the, that Saul, before he's the Apostle Paul, when he's ravaging the church is what it says, he would have been ripping people that Barnabas would have known right out of their homes, torturing them, beating them. That would have been his family, maybe his close friends. And so it is crazy that these two guys find themselves together being sent off on the first missionary journey, isn't it? Like some of you won't even hang out with other people just because you think they did this one thing to your small group and said that one thing about your family a little while ago. And I'm like, hey, guess what? These guys would have hated each other. They would have been grown up in households where they would have been given permission to hate each other. And yet God sends them off together on their first missionary journey. It's not just, it's not just Saul and Barnabas. You also have, you also have Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger, what that literally means is black. So he has very dark skin. Lucius of Cyrene, he's from Africa. And you have Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. We, we talked a little bit last week about how if you had family lineage with Herod, that did not mean you were an awesome person. That was not something you were touting on your 23andMe. Like, oh, look at this. I got a lot of percentage match with Herod's family. It's like, nope, you wouldn't tell that to anybody. Herod was a bad dude. It was a bad family. A lot of dysfunction, a lot of murder, a lot of corruption in that family. And Manny here was on his t-ball team. It says that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So here, like, can you just picture what you have gathered here? This council, this leadership team is so crazy different from one another. They're from different ethnicities. They would have been raised in households where they were, they were bred to hate different people that were sitting across that same board with them. They had different families of origin. They had different, different ethnic backgrounds. And what we have to understand, I drew attention to this last week. I want to point it out again, that as vertical reconciliation happens with God the Father, it always produces horizontal relationship with brothers and sisters here on earth. So as we achieve horizontal reconciliation, as we understand who we are because of God the Father, it empowers us with grace to achieve horizontal reconciliation with brothers and sisters here on earth, despite our differences, despite the social classes that we came in here with. We are all gathered together, just like they were gathered together, aligned with one purpose, to be God's witnesses with the power of the Holy Spirit in the world they were living in. And so this is what happens, is they are worshiping and praying I love that the word is given to them that they're going to be set apart while they were worshiping, while they were fasting. Anytime you are praying, anytime you are worshiping, you cannot remain passive in that situation. As you pray, as you open yourself up going, God, I want to worship you. I want to focus my gaze upon you. You are automatically submitting yourself to whatever it is that he wants to speak to you in that moment. There is no passivity in prayer. It is engaging the heart of God to say, what is it that you want to do, God? And when they're doing that, God says, set apart for me these guys. The only problem with that for today's day and age is like, think about how much they would have been loved in their church community. Two guys that have been around them for two years, discipling them, encouraging them, preaching to them at the Sunday gathering, building them up. They would have been in a relationship with this community. And God says, you're going to send them off for my name. And I just want to submit to you, like that, that would have been really tough. There was really close relationship. They would have missed them. They would have longed to be connected with them. You read about that in Paul's letters later on that he so longs to get reconnected with some of these relationships that he's lost touch with. And it would have been a really tough thing, but God said go. And because they were in this active and engaged position of prayer, God said go. And I love that it is bookended with fasting and prayer on both sides. After they receive the call, you know what their response is? Okay, that sounds tough. I can just guess. 
That sounds really hard to send out our, our guys, our main guys, and we're going to just send them out to go wherever God would send them. And so the response is, again, prayer and fasting. That is what's going to propel, and that's what's going to send the church forward always, is fasting, prayer, and worship. Those are, those are key components of a life surrendered to Christ. And so what I want to lay before you today is what they did, a few things from their journey that I would see that kind of parallels our journey. Because you may not be called to go on a 500-mile journey through the Middle East to take the gospel to unreached people groups. Maybe you will. That would be awesome. But my guess is you're just going to go to work tomorrow where you already work. You're just going to go to the same Starbucks that you keep going through that drive-thru way too much, spending $8 for whatever drink it is that's trending right now, the chai tea latte with pumpkin cream on top. You know, for those of you that know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the storm on social media. And you're going to the same places, you're doing the same things because we're just regular people. And so are they. Regular people with their lives laid before the feet of Jesus going, whatever it is that you want to do with this God, we're in. And that's true for us today. That's what it means to be a Christian is to say, Lord Jesus, whatever it is that you want to do with me, do it. I'm yours. I belong to you. And so we'll look at four different things that I see through these next few chapters that I think parallel with where we're at today. And then we'll just simply ask, how are we going to respond personally? And how are we going to respond as a church? The first thing that you notice right away, they leave, they go. We can throw up this slide real quick just to show the kind of journey that they went on. So they're there in Antioch over in Syria, which is still modern day Syria. Cyprus is still Cyprus. Everything to the north of that or above that is all modern day Turkey, okay? All modern day Turkey. This is the ground that they cover in Acts 13 through 15. So just a visual there if you're more of a visual person. But it says in Acts 13, so they went, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to all these places that I can't pronounce, okay? And here's what they encounter first in, in verse six. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. How fun. It's like their first encounter as they leave the church. They leave home base and they encounter a crazy magician. It's about to get all Harry Potter as far as they're concerned, right? A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here's the first thing that I noticed. If you're going to decide right now that you are following after Jesus and you will go wherever it is that he will call you, you will encounter some crazy stories. I'm not saying you'll encounter a magician. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll find David Blaine, the next David Blaine on the street or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Maybe. But like my guess is you're going to find somebody who is in critical and desperate need for Jesus. You're going to find brokenness. You're going to find pain. You're going to find hurting. And you see, as they go through this journey, there's different people that they're praying for, for healing. There's different people that they're encountering that are worshiping other gods other than the God that we know and the God that we serve, the only true God. There's this, there's this difference of worship. They're in a pagan culture filled with all this Greek worship of different gods. And they go and they're gonna encounter some crazy stories. And so will you if you decide to follow after Jesus. I just, I, I always have loved Francis Chan's challenge. I don't know if you've heard him preach before, but he just would say stuff like, if I just had a transcript of your prayers, what would those prayers look like? Now, please hear me. Like, I do not want a transcript of your prayers, okay? <laughs> but I do want you to do just a little personal inventory real quick. Is your prayer life mostly marked by just things that you kind of need and what you think of in any given moment? I don't think there's anything wrong with little prayers, logistical prayers. God, help me 
be safe on my way to work. Help protect my kids while they're at school. God, help me, give me some direction for my job. God, help me. I think all of those are really good, right little prayers. But have you like, have you laid your hands on somebody recently who had cancer and said, in the name of Jesus, would you please be healed? Right, because there's a difference between praying prayers of just like protection and prayers of safety. And then what I would just say, big faith prayers of like, God, I need your miraculous intervention right now. And I just want to submit to you, maybe the reason that we see less miraculous things happening in the church today is because we have these Western brains that we think with where everything's real linear and mechanistic. And we think input A plus input C always equals outcome D. Why did I skip a letter? I don't know. (laughs) That bothered a lot of you. That just is proof positive of our Western mechanistic thinking. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying though? Like we don't like to think of the supernatural as being normative as being something to be contended for. When was the last time you asked for something crazy? When you stepped into somebody who was really hurting, when you stepped into a situation that was really broken, and you said, I actually believe that there is a God who can answer miraculous big prayers right now. And let's pray. Because guess what? If you decide to follow after Jesus, and if you're really listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he's gonna lead you into some dark, hurting, broken, busted up parts of this world. And our opportunity, our our heart posture has to be, this is where the light was meant to go. Amen? Amen. So that's the first thing that I noticed. The second thing that I noticed is that they, um, they go and they preach the gospel everywhere they go. So if you look at it this way, it says, but Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son, oh, I'm sorry, this is more of the story from before. Um, let me jump down. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. It says, after reading from the law and the prophets in verse 15, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, I just got to tell you, there was a lot of freedom for me when I read that verse this week, okay? (laughs) I got all my buddies who are always like, why are you always doing this ridiculous stuff with your hands and with your arms? And I was like, look at it. Paul did it. I will imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. You know, that's, never mind. There are three of you with me and that's okay. Paul stands up and he preaches the gospel. There's a crowd there and he proclaims the gospel. It says in 1344, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered not to hear a TED talk, not to hear Paul give some life advice. No, for them to hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. He's preaching out of the book. It says in Acts 14.1, now in Iconium, okay, Iconium, Iconium, I've heard it both ways, all right? Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So now he's going, he's preaching in front of this diverse audience and people are receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And here's the thing, I think probably one of the biggest differences for as much attention as the book of Acts get as like, oh, we just got to get back to the early church right? We got to do the things that the early church did. What does that mean for our gatherings? What does it mean for the way we do communion? What does that mean for this? What does it mean for that? You know what probably the biggest stark contrast between the book of Acts and the church today is? They preached the gospel, not just the pastors. They, they were filled with bur- courage. They were filled with boldness to go and proclaim the story of Jesus to the people next to them. And tons of people responded. Here's just the question that I have, not in a way to incite any sort of shame on you or to heap condemnation, but when was the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody? And don't think I'm up here standing like, well, it counts for me just because I do it on Sunday mornings. No, I'm talking about like at the gym in the middle of the week. 
I'm talking about to the kids that are coming over to your house to hang out with your kids. I'm talking about the people that you work with. I'm talking about the people that are on your kids' sports team. When was the last time you just had that awkward 30-second conversation where you just went to your neighbor and you were like, hey, I know we've lived together for the last 15 years and I don't even actually remember your name, but I just want to let you know that I believe the story of Jesus is completely real. He's changed my life. And if you've got a little bit of time, I'd love to tell you about it. So like, I think a lot of us, we'd rather die than have that conversation. But man, they preached the gospel everywhere they went. Town to town, they're traveling throughout all these different cities. And, and all they're doing is they're preaching the gospel. People are responding. They're praying and asking God, fasting, going, God, who would, who would lead this community of people? And they're laying their hands on them, praying them and saying, hey, now you're elders, okay? You run this place, we're off to the next one. And they just keep going in a way where they just say, hey, this game, Christianity, it's for everyone to play. It, there's, there's not this like elite crowd that's doing this one kind of thing. No, no, like just get in here, receive the gospel, and you will start making an impact wherever it is. Uh, we, we have been doing the spiritual parenting class, Katie and I, and I say that loosely because Katie's been doing all the work. I mostly just sit at a table with some people and talk with them the whole time, okay? Spiritual parenting is this beautiful parenting class. If you're a parent in here, let me just give a quick plug for the book, okay? Because it starts with this simple premise that you, you are an imperfect and probably not so good of a parent, so I'm right there. I'm like, okay, I'm in. Now, you know, Katie and I, we think we're doing a pretty good job parenting most of the time. But then like our youngest, this is the greatest story. She's been going through kindergarten. So she's got a hard life, right? She's sitting on the couch the other day. Dog wants to go outside. Katie's like, hey, would you let the dog outside? And she just looks at Katie. True story. Looks at Katie. She's like, ah, it's my weekend. So... And it's moments like that where I'm like, this is why we need to not just do the parenting class. We need to take the parenting class. You know what I mean? Our kids are too comfy, right? That's what we said. Chores for everyone. No, I'm just kidding. They're acts of service now. You'd get it if you took the class. We're like, what I love about this book is it starts the bad news of like, you are not a perfect parent. And here's the worst news. You never will be. How many, like, how many great grandparents are in the room right now that just want to affirm that you're never, ever, ever going to be a perfect parent, grandparent, or great grandparent ever? That's the bad news. The good news is you have this person that's alongside you called the Holy Spirit. And all he wants to do is draw our attention up to Jesus and to God, the perfect father in heaven and say, hey, here he is. Here's the good news. Here's the story. And so what spiritual parenting does, it's really beautiful. That's important for every single person is that it says you, you should be cultivating environments in your life where the Holy Spirit can do wherever, whatever it is that he wants to do. Because it's not our job to make people drink from the river of living water, but it is our job to put people as close as we possibly can and to point the way. And so one of the environments that we talk about is the environment of storytelling. How we as parents, parents in the room, you need to understand that the Bible is one story. It is a collection of several stories, all telling one story, the story of Jesus, the good news of God with us. And you got to understand that every single little story you read about the Old Testament all finds its meaning and it's pointing us forward to the person and work of Jesus. And everything that Paul encourages the churches about, he's reminding them of the person and work of Jesus. And when we look forward to that one day to come, we got to understand heaven, it's going to be all about Jesus. The Bible is one story. It is this big God story. All of these different collection of messages and all these different sayings and historical accounts all pointing to the person of Jesus. And when you understand that, the only right response that we have as believers is to ask ourselves the second question is, okay, well then what's my role to play in that story? because everybody has a role to play. And part of your role is to go out and to preach the gospel. 
Katie and I, like, we've always had this little argument where I'm like, man, if we just lived in a certain kind of way, then, then people would just ask us, like, what is so different and distinct about your life? And Katie's like, that never happens. Like, you're going to actually have to go out and say something about Jesus. You're going to have to take a natural conversation and shift it to some sort of spiritual principle that's really there. And you go, I think Jesus could help us in this situation. I don't have it all figured out yet, but maybe could we read something about him? You're going to have to open your mouth and let the story fall out sometime. You can't just hope that they're going to just catch Jesus on your actions every now and then because you're probably just not that Christ-like if you're honest. So they prayed big crazy prayers and they encountered crazy stories. They preached the gospel. The third thing is that I notice is that they reject personal glory. Acts 14 verse 8. So they're in Iconium, which didn't get its name because the Jewish people caught the ick for Paul and Barnabas, okay? For all of you who are on TikTok, you know what I'm saying, but the rest of you, you're not with me, that's fine. It's a calculated joke, guys. In verse 8 of 14, it says, Now in Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they thought, was Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, they were grieved, and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men." of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's probably a tale that is as old as this book is that when you see people who are really operating and following after the Holy Spirit, they're following after the call of God in their life, the tendency of people who see that person operating that kind of way they tend to fall in love with that person rather than the person who made the person the person. You tracking with what I mean there? We love to give our attention to people who are really living out Christianity the way that we've always dreamed we would rather than recognizing that they're empowered by the grace of God alone to be doing whatever it is that they're doing. Listen, I'm as surprised as anybody that people keep coming to this church on Sunday mornings. Seriously. But I know that the Holy Spirit has called me and he's put me in a certain place. But in a weird way, I know we're all sitting in this room and all the chairs are pointing right at me and you're all looking at me. But listen, whatever platform this is, this platform only exists to give Jesus the credit that the credit, where the credit is due. But also, you have a platform in your life. I don't know if it's the thousand plus people that follow you on Instagram. I don't know if it's the 15 people that work for you at the company that you work at. I don't know if it's the fact that you have you have high schoolers that actually willingly show up at your house on Friday night and you actually get to feed them and you get to hang out with them and you get to listen to all their crazy stories. You have a platform. God's given you a sphere of influence. I, I loved, I, I got to spend some time with an older man this week. He's, he's in his 60s or 70s. He's a little bit older and he was just kind of giving some advice to me and a friend. And uh, he broke it down. There's, there's a book that does this. I can't remember the author's name, but the, there's four quarters in life. And you can think of the first quarter of zero through 20, second quarter, 20 through 40, 40 through 60, 60 through 80. He's like, I'm in the fourth quarter. 
my life has always been about um, helping people be reconciled, helping my world be reconciled to Jesus Christ. And I love that, I love that saying, my world, it's not, I would love to see the world reconciled to Jesus Christ, but I'm not responsible for the world. Jesus is. No, what I'm responsible for is I'm responsible for my world. Who are the people in my sphere of influence that I can pray and contend and talk with that they might be reconciled to love Jesus Christ? And what I loved about this man is he'd gone through different seasons of his life where he was a coach at one time and he had hundreds of athletes looking to him. He'd gone through different uh, arenas of life where he would be a speaker and he'd speak to different crowds and all these different people who would know his name, look up to him. And he said, but now I'm in this season of life where there's a few people who I'm noticing that are looking at me and they're asking me questions about who Jesus is. And he was just as intent as ever to say, I'm desperate to see my world reconciled to Jesus Christ. I've just had this burden for the last few weeks, honestly, but I wanna just acknowledge some of you in the room right now that you're in the fourth quarter of life. I see some gray hair in the room. I see some lack of hair in the room. And I just wanna say, you are desperately needed in the kingdom of God. Your assignment is not finished. You may have moved to retirement professionally, but you have just been reassigned as far as the kingdom is concerned. You are not done. Your gifts are not ineffective. Not, it's not that you are irrelevant, that you are not gonna be effective. You are called just now, more than ever potentially, to be effective for God's kingdom. I'm enough of an athlete to know that a lot of games are won or lost in the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter matters. It's significant. And younger people, people in the room, I would find somebody with grayer hair than you or less hair than you. And I'd just get around them and start asking some questions. Because we might have a lot of zeal, but we lack wisdom. They have a lot of wisdom, but they punch their time in committing themselves to zeal. And so we ought to listen to them. We ought to ask them questions. But it takes humility to do that, to engage with that. I, I love that our students right now, they're going through uh, Richard Foster's uh, Celebration of Discipline. Come on, speaking of some fourth quarter people in the room, you know that book, right? There, how, how many other youth groups right now are going through like the discipline of fasting and prayer, simplicity? My, my daughter was telling me about the discipline of simplicity the other night. I was loving it, eating it up. I've been reading, I've been reading a, a different book by Richard Foster recently. It kind of inspired me a little bit. Uh, it's a newer book of his called Learning Humility. And there's this line in that book, and I love this line. He says, humility is the, the mother and the mitch, mistress of all virtue. So it is the birthplace of all virtue for a person, but it is also the betrayer of all virtue if you don't have it. You think if I want to have the virtue of generosity, if I want to grow in generosity, it starts with the humility that says everything that's been given to me is just a mechanism to bless and to give to somebody else. If I want to have, if I want to have the virtue of patience, the mother of patience is humility because it says this person, even though they're driving me crazy right now, their time is just as important as my time. Turns out that's why a lot of people are actually impatient. But if I want to have that, if I, if I don't want to be betrayed, I have to start with humility. And so what I look at when I see this story where they're rejecting personal glory, everyone's coming to worship them, give their attention to them. They're humble enough to say, hey, we're regular men. We're ordinary guys. Everything that you're seeing happen right now is because of Jesus. And they use it as a platform to glorify God rather than to seek glory for themselves. And that's what every single one of us are called to do. To glorify God, to step into humility and to go, this story is about way more than just little old me. It's about Jesus and what he came to do. The fourth thing that I see after they reject personal glory is they lay down their personal preferences for the sake of others. So now over to chapter 15. 
In chapter 15, what you have is you have Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch, and there still is this debate about circumcision. We talked about it a little bit last week. But you can just understand and empathize that for the Jewish people, this had marked them specifically for thousands of years. This is part of what made them distinct to the world around them. And so as they're trying to embrace and figure out how they how they receive the old covenant, grew up in the old covenant, but now receive the new covenant, what that actually plays out like, they're having a hard time with it. And so now some of the apostles, they go back to Jerusalem and they start to have this council in Jerusalem where they're trying to figure out what God's heart is on the topic. And, and Peter's one of the first ones to stand up. And he says, hey, listen, here's what I know. When I was at Cornelius' house and I was sharing the gospel there to the, to the Gentiles and the first Gentiles came to receive Christ, they weren't doing these Jewish procedures. They weren't following after religion. I just preached the gospel. They responded and the Holy Spirit fell on them in a moment. It wasn't all about this religious process. It wasn't about all these things that they did to enter into the kingdom. They just, they just received by faith and got, they were extended grace by Jesus. And that's how they were saved. And then James stands up, he's kind of wrapping up the conclusion of it. He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You gotta just understand as we read through this, it's a quick read for us, but then it's this diverse group of people who again would have been who've been raised to think that their position in culture and in the world was greater than the person across the dinner table now from them. Because you know, as the church comes together, it's this diverse group of people, which we think, yes, that's beautiful. And then we, you know what I also know is that that's tough when different people have different preferences and they're all trying to eat a meal together. Golly, it's hard enough to get like, you know, all of our preferences around one small group table today because it's like, oh, you know, I don't know if it's a gluten allergy, but it certainly doesn't make me feel good. And, I, you know, I have this thing and I have this thing. And it's like, okay, well, so what are we going to make today? Let's just figure that out. And you had that to like the 10th degree going on in the first century here. When you had Jews and Greeks all of a sudden are now saying, hey, let's share a meal together. Well, that was like almost impossible for their brains to understand because they'd been so different from birth growing up. And so what James submits to them, he's like, hey, I think what people ought to do even though the Gentiles are free to do some of this stuff, I think they should lay down their liberty for the sake of the Jewish people across from them while they work out their salvation, while they worked out their sanctification. And so it took a really bold step. And for the early church, again, this isn't explicitly stated in the Bible, but implicitly what we know to be true, when a lot of people gather together, somebody's got to let their preferences slide to make the group happen. And I think the best, I mean, the easiest one that we could grab today to use for an example today is something like alcohol. Uh, there, there is no reason that you couldn't have a glass of wine after a meal when you're done at the end of the day. But that might, what might be freedom and liberty for you, something that your heart doesn't struggle with. You drink, you drink a, a, a beverage, you have a beer or something like that, and it doesn't cause you to go into this stumbling block where you drink not just one, but like 16, and you wake up, you know, like in somebody else's bed with a new tattoo on your leg or something like that, right? For some, of a, for some people, it's, it's not the stumbling block. But you might be sharing at a table with somebody that it is a stumbling block. And it is a responsibility for those who are not struggling with that to lay their preferences down for the health and for the edification of the group as a whole. So you see that. Again, it's humility. It's the humility for the disciples to say, hey, it's not about my liberty that's the most important thing here. It's about both of us having this shared experience, each other, as we follow Christ together. 
So they lay down their own personal preferences. They're, they're gathered together in a way that says, we are here for Jesus and Jesus alone. They're rejecting personal glory. They're preaching the gospel and they're encountering these crazy stories as they go about. And that's how the gospel has and that's how the gospel will continue to go forward. And so I, I have these few questions that I'd love for us to respond to during communion today. Who is it that you're praying big prayers for? Is your prayer life been just kind of largely vanilla recently where you don't feel like it's that engaging, that fun, that exhilarating? I would submit to you, maybe you're not, maybe you're not praying big enough prayers recently. Maybe you're not really contending for the hurting and for the broken parts of the city that we're living in. Who is, who's God leading you to share the gospel with? My guess is there's probably already somebody in your life that you know you need to tell them about the story of Jesus and you've just been waiting. You've been telling yourself, well, I just need to build some personal relationship with them first. And that might be true, but there comes a time when personal relationship needs to take a backseat to the fact that, no, this story is the only story that's real and it's the only story that matters. Who is it? How are you using your platform to point to Jesus? Your social media platform, your platform in your school, your platform in your business, your platform in your house, wherever it is that God has placed you and you have influence, how are you using that personally to point people's attention towards Jesus? And then is there anybody in your life right now? They have a stumbling block somewhere where you don't, but you can lay before them and say, hey, I, I'm not that, that thing that I'm, I have liberty and freedom to do. I'm gonna lay it aside for now while we work on this together because I love you and I see you and I wanna see you grow in Christ as I follow. It's not, you're not as important to me as that other thing is. So I'll lay that aside while we do this together. That's how we might respond personally. But I wanna kind of shift gears here to talk about how we might respond as a church. Because I can't help but deny as you read through the book of Acts that the response to the gospel going out in a region and churches growing up is that the apostles gather together, they, they lay their hands on people, they pray for people and they send them out to go plant other churches. There's a lot of really amazing churches in our region. And at the same time, I recognize that this church has grown a bit over the last few years. Like, I, and I'll tell you this, I'm the first one to say to you, I have no idea what the next step looks like for Good Shepherd Church. I can almost feel the tension in the room first service. I'm not leaving anywhere. I'm not being called to go plant a church. I'm not, that, that's not what's happening right now. Nobody on staff is going out anywhere. I'm just saying that if we kept growing, which healthy things grow, that's something Kent would always say. And if we stay effective at advancing the mission of God, giving the attention to Jesus rather than to ourselves, then I think God will continue to do something special in us and through us. I think churches respond in different ways. I've had so many people who have come up to me at some different point. They've said, I would love to come to your church. And if you started a Saturday night service, I would be there. And I'm like, not happening, bro. I'll just tell you, I think it, I think it kills volunteer culture. I think it kills your staff team. I, I would no longer get a Saturday with my family. And it's not all about me, but I just think, I think you, you gotta be careful if you just cater to someone who's so consumeristically driven that they're like, I'll make time on Saturday night, but Sunday morning, I got other things to do. I gotta get my week in order. I'm not saying that's you, but I'm saying that mentality is out there. We have to be careful how we responded to it. So I don't know, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that I don't want to move forward in fear, and I don't want to be stopped because of the pain of the thought of letting somebody go, because that would be hard. But I do believe that healthy churches grow, and and they're probably going to send people out to go start new vibrant communities, new beautiful communities, in the way of planting churches, maybe autonomous churches. Maybe it's churches that we stay family with and we're associated with somehow. Here, here's, like I said before, full of humility. I have no idea. 
Like I'm, I'm trying to problem solve the, the line at checkout after service. You know what I'm saying? Like parents are like, I, I see the line. It's backed up all the way to here to go pick up your kids after service. I'm trying to figure out how we figure out the line to the bathrooms on Sunday morning. But rather than just ask these like, what are we doing in this next year question? I'm like, what about 20 years from now? Because what if all these amazing, beautiful things that have happened, what if they're just the start of the thing that God's really trying to do a hundred years from now? What if these are just the little drips that we're seeing of revival that's going to be a tidal wave that's released a hundred years from now and nobody in that movement even knows one of our names? But you know what name they do know? Jesus. So here, here's what I, the only thing I know to do. I, I'm going to throw a QR code up on the screen. And what I want to say is, uh, well, yeah, because QR codes are like the thing now, right? It's like, you don't know what to do? Get a QR code. No, that's not what I'm saying. I just want to start praying. I just want to say, God, what do you want to do? Because at the very beginning, Paul and Barnabas were sent off, not from a position of problem solving, but from a position of prayer. Prayer puts you in this active seat where you're going, okay, God, what do you want to do? And so uh, if you have felt stirred to just do something for the kingdom, maybe you're a business owner and you're like, man, there's just more that I could be doing for kingdom work, not just my business. Maybe you've like, I, I think I'm being called to ministry, but I have no idea what that means. Maybe you're like, I think I have the gift of teaching or preaching, but I, and I want to use it, but I don't know how. I just want to say, hit that QR code. And what we're going to do is pray. There, there's no platform that I'm going to offer you right away. We just are going to have a spot where we just go, God, let's, let's pray for some strategic direction for Good Shepherd's role in this city. Because I don't know it. My very first sermon when I became lead pastor, when I stood up on the stage, I said, hey, Jesus established himself as the head of the church. So I'm glad I get to sit in this seat and I get to serve the body in this way. But my most effective days will only be tied to how close I stay walking with him. Same move. Jesus is the head of the church. I just want to ask him what he wants to do with it. So hit that if you want to, if that's an interest to you. But I want to shift now to a time of communion. I'm going to put those questions back up on the screen, Lorenzo. And rather than me kind of talk through what this might mean for you. I just would love for you to sit with the Holy Spirit and for you to ask, Holy Spirit, who is it that I need to be praying for more intently? Who is it that you're leading me to share the gospel with? I was talking with a gal after first service. I think what's really critical in this moment is that you don't, you don't put all the should on yourself and that you don't let shame creep in. This shouldn't generate things to do on your to-do list. This should be the Holy Spirit prompting you with opportunity where he is leading you. So let him lead. You're not in charge here. Let him lead, let him speak, let him guide. If you seek him, and if you ask for him to lead you, I believe he's gonna give you some answers in one of these areas. So let's take a few minutes, pray through that, ask the Holy Spirit to come, and then I'll come up. I'm gonna close this. We're gonna receive communion together today as a body. It's not how we always do it, but I'm gonna come up and lead us in communion together. Um, so I'll come up and just close this out in a few minutes with communion. But uh, for right now, I just wanna say, come Holy Spirit. So just wherever you're at, every seat, just pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to me, guide me, lead me. We trust you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take a few minutes, I'll come close this out soon. Would you guys go ahead and stand? I'd love to invite the prayer team to come on down front now to make your way. If you need anything for prayer, if there was something during that list, maybe the Holy Spirit's highlighting something, uh, 
take it from me. These are my friends up here and they'd love to spend a little more time just asking God to be clear, to speak to you regarding whatever it is that's going on in your life right now. So if you'd love to connect with somebody in prayer, they're down up front here with the orange lanyards on. But if we could, could we just kind of posture our hands out like this? God, I want to pray first for the fourth quarter individuals in this room. God, I pray for an effectiveness to be on their life. I pray that they would be marked by a boldness and a sense of grace, gentleness, and wisdom to pursue even just this next generation behind them or whoever it is that you put in their path, that they would see those people that they've been contending for, that would they see them be one to you? Would they see people reconciled to you in Jesus' name? Would they have more beautiful, quiet time with you than they've ever had in their whole entire life this week? God, would they have a more wonderful and robust life filled with worship than they've ever had before? God, for all of us, I just ask that this would be the start of a week filled with worship this week. That our worship wouldn't be marked by just a 90-minute time on Sunday morning, God, but would we be stirred now to go out and represent you, to be your witnesses in this world that you've placed us in. Help us to see the circle of influence you've put us in. Help us to preach, to represent your, your kindness, your goodness, your love, your care. And help us to go from here filled with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 